Thoughts of home tormented the red, ever far from familiar surroundings. However, she had no place to which to return. Her desire to find her cousin became as steadfast as her continued lament. Until she arrived at the head of the Tisri Trail, the Red had seen no signs of Randall. There, however, she found old spore from his pack animals. If she had remembered the length of the trail correctly, she estimated from the droppings and previous weather conditions that in three weeks she should catch up with him as he reached the last climbs in the pass, the eighth level. While the moons lit half the night and the stone figures guided her ascent, she could travel as fast as she could during the remainder. Well into one evening, she passed the location where Randall some time ago had spotted what was to be Turan's isolated alpine garden, high above the trail. Days later, still following the trail of Spore, Oksana crossed the camp where Herpidros had met with Randall. She did not miss the improper signs of scuffling, smudged ground and sets of deep boot marks. Since Randall and his tagalongs had left consistent Spore and tracks, Oksana assumed a reasonable inference her poor cousin had met with an attacker. However, the pack animals had so obscured the soil she could not infer the number of assailants, nor could she ascertain the direction of the assault. Seeing the outlaw's traces, though, disheartened her. Had the brigands remained in her vicinity? Her spine shook, for she had become complacent and too self-assured in her own safety. She searched farther away from the scuffle as fresh caution filled her steps. Indeed, signs headed away from the trail. She cautiously followed the faint tracks inadvertently left by the desperados. She quelled her breathing and wound among the shadows of the jammed door, past rock slides, scrambles, and camouflaged passages. The red followed the scant trail across a long face of smooth rock where she lost the track. Oksana scurried up and down the barren edges, searching for any sign, but each endeavor proved too precipitous for man and beast. From the last sign of the crew, she drew an imaginary course across the barren face and struck out. One hundred spans away, she reached the opposite side. Astonished, she found a trail but no direct signs of Randall's pack animals. When the new trail appeared to fly off into space, Oksana refitted her limited gear and crawled to ascend the steep course. To minimize her exposure, she crept up on all fours to the crux, then glanced over with one eye, head tilted. A prize of sorts lay before her, Half a league below appeared a large hollow of luscious greens and vegetables. Her eyes grew big as she counted rows of orange and yellow winter squash. Tiny vines full of smart-looking berries and vine fruits, trellised grapes at the uppermost end, and varieties of young gourds the size of long bats. A portion of the ground had been recently turned over where vibrant winter greens set up residence. Oksana scanned the vicinity but discerned nothing to cause her trouble. At the sight of the full gardens, she exulted, for the trail and her stomach had been barren of food the last week. If she waited until cover of dusk's darkness to cross into the open basin, she could safely fill up and begin to replace her lost body weight. Already she had perforated three holes in her waist belt to readjust her tunic. With spare time to think, as she waited for the collapse of day, she reflected on her disquietude. The signs of a fight at Randall's camp and the faint trail worried her. Yet she could not be underjoyed, for trove of comestibles awaited. Nevertheless, its presence was another mystery, a garden in the middle of brigand country. Furthermore, how could such fruits and delicate vegetables survive the arrestingly cold elevation? How had these robbers become excellent gardeners? 
Sudden relief swept over her consternation, for the danger could not be as great as she had imagined. Bandits simply do not garden. A bandit may hide for a duration, may prepare elaborate lairs, may invent mind-bending schemes of fraud and chicanery to waylay one or two hapless victims solely to avoid the toil of simple work such as gardening. There might be danger in these climes, she mused, but it was not due to cultivating desperados. Furthermore, she knew Randall's animals could not have crossed the bald rock behind her, but a man could have. Therefore, where was her cousin? Furthermore, the probability of early snow would have deterred Randall from off-trail adventure. She concluded she must retrace the old trail along Randall's path to find signs that she had missed. However, a night of feasting waited. Her anxiety declined as the sun's auroras shifted from orange to red and then violet. Each cascade of color brought dinner time closer. When darkness ruled the evening sky, a smile tickled her lips. In such bleak quarters, the remarkable provender of the vegetables excited Oksana, especially when she discovered the garden's secret life force. Where the hollow or basin capped, a natural hot spring rested from the hard, chilled earth and through clever irrigation schemes, wreathed down on either side of the raised plots. At the end of the garden glen, the water rejoined in fingerlock fashion and disappeared into the subterranean. The genius in this system produced both water and heat for the plants. Those requiring the warmest temperatures were planted nearest the hot spring, and those requiring less at the opposite end. Happily, the temperate slough furnished a thick frog which concealed Oxana's whereabouts. Though occasionally she misplaced her step to retrieve a bootful of lukewarm water, she did not complain. All night she ate to saturate her starved frame. Her favorites, fresh greens, late-season berries, a strange green flower, soft yellow squash, and untouched wild asparagus. When she could eat no more, the red dragged her extra volume to the warmest corner for a nap. She pulled her gauntlet and tunic tighter for warmth, wavered in a semi-conscious state for a second, and then sank into sleep. Ten hours later, the light of late morning woke her. Although she had not moved all night, her slumber was poor, for the sharp ground had pinched her sides and back, and outlandish dreams intruded her self-order. She cursed herself for sleeping so long. She scanned for any possible dangers, but as before, no people were in sight. The young woman toileted and started retracing her way back to the vapid rock face. However, animal voices rode in on the stiff breeze. She dropped to the ground, using the hunting master's technique. She was all ear. She stopped breathing and consciously slowed the rhythmic thump of her heart. She allowed herself no margin of error. Again the sounds came. Straight away she recognized pack animal clatter, the most vociferous of which was the familiar bray of a temperamental burrow beast, Randall's entourage. Oksana grew excited at the prospect of seeing all. She was close to her journey's end. Within moments the red was at the lee of their shelter. Breaking free of their temporary abode, they had meandered to graze upon the choicest brush. Their tack carried glendary markings with traditional family ribbons tied to the harnesses. Furthermore, she recognized the old burrow beast belonging to her uncle, Pan, who would have permitted Randall to use the pet. Pan would never have sold the troublesome creature, 45 years in tooth. Although she could not remember the burrow beast's name, she patted its nose as if they were chums. Dinky bent down his huge ox-like head for a rub and permitted Oksana to scratch between his ears and soothe his protests. 
Clear to the red's sharp eyes, human tracks ran in two directions from the shelter. First, a pathway heavily traveled, while second, up a grassy knoll, a less used pathway. Oxana cast her lot for the former. Duly listening for others, she tiptoed down the path which led into a church of enormous boulders. However, the footpath disappeared at the base of impassable clumps. She crossed the open, worn grass and arrived at a niche between two untidy rocks sitting upon a hodgepodge of smallish boulders. The recess hooked left and opened into a cave's entrance. With her knife in hand, Oxana perused the one-chambered room for occupants. Contributing to her confusion, the sparse room possessed proof of human occupation. Two meager bowls of winter squash left partially uneaten. Moving forward into the darkness, her feet tripped over Randall's small backpack, which he had forgotten when the hermit had abruptly disappeared behind the bogus wall less than a day earlier. She seized upon the final proof of Randall's presence and looked for signs of trouble. Yet the room was a dead end. Thus, Oxana returned to the lesser path which she had not taken, hoping it led to a similar dwelling which contained her cousin. She slung Randall's pack over her shoulders, strode past the camel and burrow beast, aimlessly grazing, and proceeded up the knoll. The second route was longer and more difficult to follow than the prior one. She happened to observe that the gardens where she had eaten her surfeit of grub was hidden from either path. Unexpectedly, the faint trail ended at a hopeless impediment, two huge boulders festooned with garlands of thorns. Another dead end? She wondered but felt otherwise. A maxim she had learned from her early days of catechism surfaced. When faced with the impossible, choose the least improbable. She stretched out her hand, but quickly drew back in distinct pain where the spines burned her flesh. However, the gentle stress loosened a dead leaf which landed below amid a vacancy. Bending down, Oxana noticed an opening that could not be seen while standing. A breezy gap between the nettles and thin trunks teased her curiosity, and pushing Randall's pack forward on her knees, she followed the anomalous path. Three spans in, she found an open, narrow grotto. The light from the cracked openings above illuminated the next twenty spans as the fissure slowly constricted and formed a full-fledged cave. Without independent light, the darkness overwhelmed her lonely figure but she continued forward, blind in the gloom. When the breeze became focused and the sound of her breathing grew in her ears, she knew the cavity had shrunk. She reached up into the blackness to determine the location of the ceiling sloping towards her, but it was too late to avoid the crash. Concealed in the darkness, the ceiling immediately turned downward. The impact between Oxana's head and the ceiling, now properly called a wall, split a knuckle's width of skin on her vibrant forehead. The stab of pain made her bellow. She cursed at the blackness as she felt the wetness of her own blood reach her eyes and then run down her nose. A piece of cloth ripped from an undergarment served as a makeshift bandage. Without aid of light, she dabbed the blood from her nose and reminded herself of her long-standing disinclination towards spelunking. She bent where she had failed to stoop and located a tunnel at her feet, which she followed. Groping here and there, she caught the distinct odor of food in the steady current. She crawled deeper until finally she stood up, inside a large larder filled with sweet apples. It is here, Turan reverently spoke as he entered the chamber. The recluse had led Randall through the mountain's belly along winding tunnels strewn with debris which bruised Randall's feet from his missteps. As darkness swallowed up the light of their torches, Randall pulled out a spare and lit it. 
the puny flame could not defeat the penetrating pitch. In a radical attempt, Randall extracted a hard chunk of magnesium from a small tin of fire starter which he carried. He secured the second torch upright between two large rocks and dropped into its fire a small block he had saved for starting wet wood. The magnesium flared briefly, adding additional brilliance to the vast cavern. Though amused at the newcomer's ambitious determination, Turan drifted away. Randall's eyes followed the hermit's silhouette as the hermit disappeared into the confines of the cave. Once more, Randall begrudged trusting his safety in such inhospitable holes to the strange hermit. Was he a dupe to Turan's complicated ruse, conjured to waylay him? Randall tensed and instinctively touched his clothes where he concealed his dagger to double-check the difference in the weight of his left boot from the right. At the base of a ledge, the hermit stopped and called. It is here. My people have never seen such a sight as this place, answered the hermit's wary audience. Ah, but they have, the recluse replied. The old man turned towards his anxious associate, whose sweaty hands manifested his misgivings. See, said the old man, as he raised his torch above his head. The beams hit upon some object, a stone statue, standing alone. Randall drew closer to the form of a man. The flickering flames cast light on a face of undivided attention, earnestly watching some imagined object ahead. Suddenly the force of recognition hit him, and he swayed a bit in fright, for Randall beheld his own unmistakable face in the figure. Yes, it is you, boy, the hermit reacted. Your features, your appearance, your expression, you. Turan pulverized the word your, as would a bully strike blows. You have been here, or at least your people have, Turan continued. Under the image that had appropriated his likeness, Randall feverishly wrung his memories for anything useful. Randall's mother, Clea, had spoken of how his natural mother, Janiah, came to them and left Randall behind, even as his four older siblings remained with her. Janiah had worn a safety skirt, common among the tribes along the Fourth Divide, west of Hindsfeet. Janiah, according to Clea, had talked of unrest in the mountains, but they never said more. Randall of the Lee, his formal name, grew up in Pankin in the Glendary province by the Great Sea. In Pan and Clea's family, he was the third of four brothers and one sister, yet they were not his family by birth. In late spring, Randall's birth mother, Janiah, herded her four worn-out children into the shop where Pan and his father worked. Karna, C, Torin, and Bild, all boys, clung to her safety skirt as Randall, only two months old, rested tied to her bosom. She asked for work and instead received a home. A year later, news reached the village of Pankin that a stranger, described as a soldier who carried no weapons, had entered Bodash and asked questions about Janiah. Pan relayed the gossip to his family, but Janiah did not take it well. Having earned their trust, Janiah divulged the events prior to her stay in Pankin. In short, the conspicuous soldier had vowed to forfeit her life unless she submit Randall and all of his siblings into his custody. Naturally, she ran. Certainly, her history disturbed Pan and Clea, and they pled with Janiah to leave at once by sea with their assistance. But Janiah countered with a difficult request for Clea to take Randall, who was too young to make the sea voyage. Long into the night, Clea and Pan discussed the matter until finally they consented, with the condition that Janiah return as soon as she could. Pan arranged a fishing boat to take her and the children wherever she ordained, and a weeping mother left her young sleeping boy with his new parents. Years passed, but Janiah never returned, nor her sons.
Vandal reviewed the image so distinctly his own. How? he aptly asked. Although Randall's withdrawal-induced fit served as trans catalyst to reveal the image of his familiar, he did not plan to fully divulge its meaning until he judged Randall's reaction. Indeed, for two centuries, Turan had waited in quiet existence to entertain such moment. When the bug-eyed boy recognized his own portrait in stone, the old hermit knew. It was an odd feeling, as if light had sound, Randall later recalled. After the hermit unveiled the statue, a whirring noise buzzed in Randall's ear. The chamber grew brighter as if someone lit a thousand torches. A mechanism in the roof, triggered by Turan, opened and slowly exposed the chamber to sunlight in which the statue gained full size. Twenty spans above Randall was the ceiling, but not more than thirty spans away was another chamber, a shaft that shot into the sky ten times as vast as the former. Randall looked up to investigate the expanse of blue sky. As one misjudges a step, the sight made him reel and nearly sent him into the crater. When he regained his balance, he cautiously approached the precipice of the larger hole. A series of trails spiraled down with steep, short grades, intermixed with successions of steps. Is there no bottom? Randall asked as he could not discern one. That's like asking if there's no sky, Tran smiled. Randall turned towards the hermit and asked, Where are we? You are in the heart of Jamdor, replied Herpidros. I can see that, but what kind of place is this? Who carved out those trails? Randall asked as he pointed down. And most of all, what is that thing down there? Randall pointed to a second object as he spat out questions like one would objections. You are in the soul of Tizri, below the Jambrismra. The orb is below, and the Tizrians made the objects you know not, answered the hermit in schoolmaster fashion. Who are these Tizrians? asked Randall. The hermit bent over laughing. Why, you are Tizri, he bellowed. Perhaps, he continued amused, you will see one soon. Randall's discomfiture stemmed from his own ill-considered expectations of a raving hermit, who at all turns could not be trusted. It is amazing, the hermit continued, that the likeness so corresponds to yours. The old man turned to face the image, almost genuflecting. His mood sullied. Seeing it so infrequently, I had nearly forgotten, he pensively continued. When I saw your camp, my curiosity wondered what type of fool would journey in these warring times. But when the dim light struck your face, I fell with a shock. It couldn't be, but it could. It wasn't him, but it was, Turan cried as he pointed to the stone. What you see is your own kind. Distress appeared in the hermit's face. You, Turan shouted and pointed his sharp finger at Randall. You are not the soldier king. You have stolen his countenance, but you are not John the Dauphin. Randall could not believe his ears. No, he remonstrated. If this is John the Dauphin, why has no one else recognized my shared likeness? How can you be certain this thing is the Dauphin's image? Living in solitude for so long had deteriorated the hermit's lucidity. Of course you're not the Dauphin, he whispered his acknowledgement. Nevertheless, it is your prophecy. Turan suppressed his outburst. Your likeness, I must show you the orb. The what? replied Randall. Follow me, Turan said, as he indicated downwards towards the mammoth hole. I'm not going down there, objected Randall. Not going? the hermit demanded. You have so much to see. For more than three hundred years, no one else has seen the orb, and you are not willing? You're insane, old man, Randall retorted without stopping. You have led me this far into who knows where. The soul of Tizri, 
I've never heard of Jam Bismra, and I've no idea how you got my likeness on that monument. Certainly I don't fancy any more surprises. You have promised me how to live in the bomb. You said yourself you've lived there. Now is the time to call you on your word. Explain how one can survive in that desert. Without conceding to Randall's tantrum, the hermit quietly sat down on the hard rubble and peered up into his face. Well, he paused, it is a long account. Are you not going to sit? Randall felt slightly foolish. Had he won? The argument ended too quickly. First, let me explain the orb, and then I will tell you of the bomb. I'm right again, Randall complained aloud. You have not compromised. Indeed, Tran had merely extended his game, and Randall was no closer to his goal. Sit, humor the hermit, Tran smiled. The orb rests below, the cross-legged hermit began. It is the concealed reality of the capra. Randall impatiently sat down. The orb, how is it part of the capra? Each time Randall intruded with questions, the hermit's tail stretched longer. Rather than a prison of evil, the orb became a prison of light. Randall wanted to interrupt, but held back. The capra's purpose was to imprison the banes who have no natural morality. Indeed, as you or I would consider the worm of a fly, the banes would consider us. They do not consult, they do not see us. Thus, Sanji Shibero feared the banes. I cannot put their chaos into words. To hold the banes, as Sanji wished, the pre-lives fashioned a hold in the fabric of time, a bubble of non-existence, if you can imagine. However, they made more than one, but did not inform the other races. How many more exist, if any, is unknown. We see them as globes of light, though indeed they are not. Randall had no idea what fever had taken the loner, whose acuity grew more questionable. In Glendary, Randall had similarly witnessed old seamen wander into saloons and boarding houses to spread similar tales of impossibility from their years-long voyages. Finished with his yarn, the hermit demanded, Let us go see the orb. No, I'm not convinced, Randall stopped him. If you tell me what you know of the bomb, then I will entertain your suggestion, but I am resolved I will go no further without payment in our bargain. All I have is your empty promise. I will put behind me all of this nonsense, this statue, and every anecdote you've spoken unless you keep your pledge. To stage his determination, Randall stood to restart. You won't get back that way, the hermit softly spoke. Randall spun on his heels and demanded an explanation. No, no, you'll not be able to find your way back, the recluse attempted to answer. There are passages which you did not regard that feed into this one. I saw you. You did not mark all the changes as we passed through, and you will not notice the correct passage on your return. Randall was in no mood to listen. The yarn and promises were traps. You have no soul, no sane substance in you. Randall pointlessly argued. You're alone up here in this wasteland, and you're sick with half-lives that have become your reality. You've lived on children's stories in which you wish to pull me. Lead me out of this maze, as you say. Damn you to the bone. Damnation to this tisri. As he heaped curses upon the hermit's unchecked, vexing cheekiness, Randall's shouts rebounded throughout the chasm. They hung in the air and intermingled in odd harmonies. Randall awaited the hermit's response as the echoes faded. The hermit prepared his defense, but stopped when his ears picked up a far-off drone. The whine expanded with a tuneful quality, as if a score of choruses sang a single note, slightly off-pitch at intervals. As the alien din increased, a strange radiation filled their large hall. Already Randall's paranoia had crept beyond his comfort, thus he immediately blamed the hermit in fashioning another trick. However, the old recluse quaked too.
Within seconds, the noise deafened them and forced each man to cover his ears. Before their feet, cold, tasteless clouds gushed out of the ancient chasm. The hermit closest to the ledge saw it first. A hot fireball spewed upward and raced towards the two. The hermit dove behind the statue, and Randall, with sheep-like response, followed. Although he had not seen the burst of flesh-charring fire as the hermit had, Randall understood the fear in Turan's eyes. After all, to run for cover in the wake of another's flight is a natural act. A fiery orb appeared out of the abyss and levitated above the rim. Turan and Randall, in their retreat, crouched behind the only obstacle between them and the chasm that is the statue. As they clung to its safety, the red-hot radiation drove them away from its edges. Randall rapidly calculated whether he could safely reach their exit behind him. However, his intended path stretched twenty paces parallel with the threatening blaze, time enough to burn him. He shouted his contrived plan and demanded that the hermit follow, but Turan did not hear. Indeed, Randall shook the fellow, but the burning sphere had transfixed him. Randall hesitated as the conflagration worsened. The statue blistered his hands. The smell of his singed beard choked the air around his face. He shook his guide again and shouted, There's no choice! We must run! But the hermit remained petrified. With his head down, Randall leapt to his feet into a dead run. Immediately, the left side of his face, the side nearest the Holocaust, burned red. When he pulled his coat up to shield it, the conflagration burned the outside of his hand. The heat-scorched ground cooked through his boots. He thought the hermit must have been dead already from the unbearable temperature. Midway through his sprint, Randall felt faint. He screamed and, as blackness filtered into his vision, he fell. At that moment, however, the noise and the heat abated, and echoes of the whirling hot air receded. Randall remained motionless, but looked back nonetheless. The formidable fire faded into a cool blue-white orb which levitated above the giant hole. Considering the magnitude of the conflagration, its diminutive size seemed implausible. The object had raged with impossible force one moment, but the next it exhibited a settled benevolence. Randall's head cleared, and returning to his escape plan, he crawled towards the only exit. As he reached the last turn, the ball of light with dreadful swiftness fixed itself by Randall's face. When he moved, the ball floated with him. Turn it back, he shouted to the hermit. Damn you, turn it back, Randall repeated. Turan, however, was numb with fear and bewilderment. The blue-white orb had sat stationary for centuries on a three-pronged dais at the bottom of the colossal chasm. Never had he witnessed such fire. In his initial panic, he believed the orb sought reprisal for bringing the foreigner into the shrine. However, when the orb returned to its former condition and clung to Randall, Turan comprehended. The words you spoke no doubt called the orb, Herpetros answered with excitement, though he remained behind the statue. You have the only way to turn it back. I do not know anything in this matter, Turan shouted at Randall, stiff with fear. Randall shifted, and the orb readjusted its orbit. The hermit spoke. Randall, my young arrival, you have instigated this abnormal performance, as I have never seen the orb burn or freely move about. Speak to it, the old man assured. Speak to this, Randall replied. I speak to it. It speaks to me, the hermit acted insulted. Silence followed until Randall attempted Turan's suggestion. Back off, White Orb. The sphere remained unchanged. Randall, it's alive. It was made thus, Turan appealed. Ask of it. Orb, what do you seek? Randall implored. The orb articulated in a stuttering choruses of basses and sopranos. What came first? 
Its response baffled Randall. First what? First what? He called her to Rand to seek clues. A catalog of answers ran through Randall's mind. He thought of the hermit and himself, the statue, and finally the familiar joke of the chicken and the egg. But here was no joke. The hermit interrupted. It is speaking of the beginnings. Were you not taught of the beginnings? Randall's catechisms had taught various theological, cosmological, and historical views of the beginnings, but foremost in his mind was Tagla's story, the tale that he liked best as a child. Our dreams, they came first. The orb whizzed with a clicking sound and flashes spun outward from its circumference. Suddenly the spinning stopped and a perfect octave of bass and soprano voices answered. The mine is complete. The orb is yours. <laughs>